Hi, this is Bobby Kamari, and I want to thank you for listening to season two of the Living in Light podcast, where the whole season is going to be dedicated to the fabulous topic of sacred sexuality. I hope it blesses your socks off. I am so blessed to be able to bring you another two-parter, another amazing conversation. This time I am chatting to the wonderful Stephen James Hart, such a precious young man. We're talking about sexual restoration. You're just going to love his fire, his passion, his hunger for the Lord, his conviction, his vulnerability and authenticity. You are in for such a treat. This is part one and I really hope you are so uber blessed by this conversation. Stephen, thank you so, so much for joining me today. It's such a joy to actually have you all the way from New Zealand. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> Amazing. So yeah, welcome to the Living in Light podcast, Stephen thank Hart. You. Thank you so very much. I'm so excited and honored to be um, getting to share with you uh, and love what you are doing. Um, I think it's so, so necessary and so important today to have um, ministries that will talk about things that aren't always popular um, and that will stand up for um, for truth and a, a kingdom perspective on what God has for us today in all spectrums of society and things that we find ourselves in, whether it's comfortable to talk about or not. So yeah. I am honored and stoked to be here with you too. Thank you. What's so incredible is, and I said this in the email that I actually sent you asking you if you'd come onto the show. Um, my beautiful friend, when she told me about you and we listened to your podcast, together and I heard you talking about sexuality and I heard you talking about God's heart for people that are struggling in this area and just in general your insight and your way of thinking when it came to God and when it came to sexuality and I remember saying to my friend oh my gosh this guy actually could have written a chapter in my book because the way he thinks and the way he speaks and the language that he uses like it's so close to my heart and so it was such a joy for me when you said yes and then on top of that this actual season of this podcast it's coming to an end and I literally only had a couple more episodes to record around the area of sexual you know restoration and then I hear your podcast get in touch with you and bam you're just like yes like for me this is definitely kissed by heaven so thank you Jesus agreed amen thank you Jesus so good um, Stephen, why don't you tell everyone listening a little bit about yourself? Who are you? What are you up to? What are you doing in this season? Yes, yes, of course. Um, well, hello to everyone uh, listening. Kia ora, as we would say here in uh, Aotearoa, which is the Maori name for New Zealand, which is where I now live. Um, I uh, was born and raised in New Zealand, but then I actually moved to America, to Redding, California, uh, about six years ago to join the team at Bethel Music. Um, I joined there as an art director, well, first actually as a designer and as a photographer, and I sort of filled in <laughs> many creative jobs. You know how that goes. Um, and sort of was entrusted with um, helping to develop and steward a team there of creatives. And uh, as, as that role and time went on, it um, definitely sort of became a little bit more pastoral too, in a really beautiful way, as we would have like a, an annual worship school that happened and I would get to share and um, a, a lot more of my heart really opened up and I, and I realized how much um, love and passion and compassion that I have for 
the bride, like for, for you know, preaching to the choir, actually really, um, there's so much, and I, I love evangelism and, and the, you know, go and making disciples of all nations. And then I do think so often that we neglect often the people in our own congregations, the people that are around us that have, that are like on the same page, we've signed up. And then we almost kind of get left behind. And I've had this huge thing that's been growing in my heart that really kind of came to life while I was in America at Bethel um, of just this preaching to the choir and wanting to, you know, as a baseline, if we're on the same page in terms of believing and following Jesus, but then what is actually a life in the spirit? What does a life with Jesus look like? You know, the tough things, the things that we don't like to talk about, as I said before, that I love that you're doing. And so that sort of really grew um, a lot in me while I was away. And then about, Oh gosh, beginning of this year. So actually just before COVID and um, <laughs> amazingly, New Zealand did a wonderful job of dealing with COVID. So it's actually been a great blessing to be here and not locked down. We're all just hanging out, having fun. Um, it's great. Um, and, but, but prior to COVID, I really just felt the Lord saying like, hey, it's time for change. What do you want to do? And that messed with my theology of like, no, no, no. It's always been like, your will be done. Like, what do you want me to do? And I'll just do it. Like I'm your servant. And I felt the Lord really challenging me and saying, hey, I trust you. So what do you want to do? If you knew that you couldn't fail and, and that you could do whatever you want, that I would bless you, what would you want to do? And this thing came up in me of, I want to return home. I want to go back to New Zealand. I didn't know why or what I would do. Um, and the Lord told me he had things in, in store for me, but he didn't tell me either. He said, I'm not telling you until you get there. So trust me, but trust yourself. And so I did. I got on a plane um, in the midst of COVID, came back here to quarantine for two weeks, the whole whole shebang. Um, and then I spent three months away at um, our family's beach house just to get away, to recenter, to unload, to process a lot of the last six years, the, the great times, the tough times, all of it, to give it to the Lord and to get ready for the next season and for all that he had. And then right at the very end, a job came up actually at my old local church and um, as a creative and communications team leader with the, again, kind of that vision and heart of this place, wanting to really pastor creatives and see people stepping into their truest identity and wholeness and health in all aspects of that with worship, creativity, all that kind of thing. And I just felt the Lord say, this is it. And um, my heart leapt at the chance of being able to do this. And um, it has been three weeks of incredible um, journeying and growth already just being here and like, you know, but also coming up against the old things of like, it's your old church, your old home, move back in with the parents. It's all that kind of stuff all in one, but God's grace is so amazing, you know, so, so amazing. And um, it's incredible. I'm, I'm so fulfilled and so excited for the future and the things on the horizon, both at this place and in the future for 2021. It is a great, great time to be alive. <laughs> That sounds amazing. I love yeah. the fact that you just by faith stepped out, got on a plane, yeah. went back to New Zealand, not knowing what God had in store for you. And now you've begun this new job and you're three weeks into it. By the time I think the podcast goes out, you'll probably be four weeks into it. Um, so I love the fact that, you know, you've dived into this new life as a new year begins. So yeah. Awesome, awesome, awesome stuff. Um, I'm going to get you to share just a little bit about your upbringing. And what I do want to say to the audience is that I literally have not heard Stephen's story at all. Um, usually I have some kind of an insight and I kind of know the person or I've heard about the person, etc. But I feel really, really just blessed because I don't know anything about Stephen's story. <laughs> 
Um, so guys, we are in for a treat. Um, but just to kind of lay the foundation a little bit, why don't you tell us what growing up for you was like in the home environment that you lived in? Like what was intimacy like? What were your views on sexuality and connection and intimacy as you were growing up and maybe heading into your teenage years? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it's interesting, hey, because I think hindsight is a it's a really wonderful thing. I hadn't, um, I, I guess kind of growing up, I didn't think too much about, um, I don't know, you don't really compartmentalize things or, or look at it necessarily in a um, analytical way and realize what's going on often until you can sort of like look back and often too with a lot of actually time in between where you can really look back and analyze something and understand what was going on. Um, but I realized um, looking back how intimacy actually wasn't role modeled to me. Um, yeah, in family, both both the media and then wider family, um, I never felt connected to my parents. Um, I always felt like uh, my sister was loved more than me by my parents. Um, I didn't get on well with my sister at all. We fought all the time and she would tell you myriads of stories. <laughs> just us at each other's throats all the time and I think a lot of that was like sometimes just kind of the funny sibling rivalry probably from her side but from my side it was this deep hurt and bitterness that I really felt like my parents loved her more preferred her more and not just that but also that they hated me that there was something that I was like this um disgrace I was this black sheep of the family because I was maybe a bit more extroverted I was louder I was um, always demanding attention, just very different personality types. And my sister was so chill. <laughs> um, she was very um, go with the flow, a lot more academic, had her few friends and just kind of like, you know, um, stayed the course. So a very easy child to parent. And I was this wild, crazy one. Um, and I think, uh, to be honest, I, I, um, I realized too, when I was looking back at it, thinking about um, this podcast and thinking about childhood and like, who's to blame in all of that? Like, it's funny, that's where my mind goes, you know, and working through things. And I'm like, I, I realized that while we all have to take responsibility and my parents, you know, take responsibility for the way that they parented to the best that they could. I also was thinking, I think it's interesting that, you know, we're talking to you from the UK because you probably understand this a lot more than my American counterparts did when I was over there and would explain some of these things. The Australia, New Zealand, UK culture um, is not affectionate mm -hmm. and we don't really show love often. It's, it's quite the opposite to the norm of um, cultural norms, I guess, to be the big, you know, huggy, yeah. you know, lovey-dovey family on the couch together, hanging out, you know, all under one blanket watching a movie and, you know, and, and the, the long hugs and all the things that we see in American TV and movies that, that kind of become this weird bubble of what we all know maybe we would aspire to or want or we're seen as this idea of per perfect culture. And yet we find that then we look, you know, outside of our doorway at home and that's not what we're greeted with every day. Mm -hmm. um, and not, you know, again, that's not saying that the, that parents, my parents aren't loving, don't love me. It's, it's none of that. It's just that the way in which they were raised. I mean, my dad is British, um, my mum is Kiwi. Um, and so both within their marriage and then to us, I never saw public displays of affection. There was never 
um, huge words of affirmation or praise or, you know, it was kind of assumed that you were loved. Um, and then again, on the other side, my parents also found their own little ways of showing love. Like whenever my dad had a job where he would be constantly in Australia for long periods of time, and he would always have a, a little note that he would handwrite for each of us, me and my sister, every night that he was away. And there was now I look back at those and I just think, man, he he just loved us so much. And, and, and that was his way of showing that. And the, the, intentionality behind that and, and I would just like read them and just be like yeah here's proof again that like you're away and you're not here <laughs> so you don't love you want to like run away or whatever and I mean however warped that is as a child it's again hindsight is interesting hey when we look back and see things of how we you know perceive things but I, I think as well um my dad in in more of that sexuality gender side of things too my dad um has never been the the typical you know um again you would relate to this in the UK um, macho, rugby loving, sport loving, um, gender stereotypical male that I think so much of culture that, that also American culture would fully, you know, um, pursue and celebrate and idolize. Um, he's been a business savvy, very intelligent, um, soft hearted, kind, loyal man, um, and is, is an amazing husband and and father, um, and so much of that has actually grown deeper and is beautiful now that we're both adults. Mm -hmm. um, but growing up, I remember, um, I mean, I was writing down some of the stuff the other day and thinking like, gosh, that's so hectic to say, but I remember feeling embarrassed of my dad when I was a kid because he wasn't like, he was unco. Like when we'd be like, you know, if you're kicking a ball or whatever or throwing things, it just, it wasn't this like the cool, awesome yeah. dad that like, other kids in my class had or that I would see in the movies that I just would then look in across the table and be like, it, I would be, I would be left so frustrated and hurt. And then as I started to grow up, I realized I was blaming him. And worse than that, realized I was becoming like him, mm. even though I definitely didn't want to, because it was all that I'd seen modeled to me. That's what I started to become like. Yeah. Um, and it deeply angered me, frustrated me, confused me. And definitely pushed me into confusion sexually as well, where I didn't, you know, I, in watching him growing up, I didn't, I never saw him affectionate with my mom. And I never saw the, you know, like where the classic scene in the movies where like, you know, mom and dad are like kissing in the kitchen or dancing and just they're, you know, playful and light and loving. And the kids are like, ooh, and all that kind of thing. But that's actually such healthy part of child developmental stuff. And you know, I'm sure you would talk about this, of that healthy approach to sexuality from a young age all the way through. It's so important that it's not just this thing that's like suddenly we open the door at 13 and like, wow, you know, these weird books and kids are just horrified. It should be a holistic, yeah. age-appropriate, mm -hmm. healthy view of love and affection and sexuality and, and all of this that just was, it was a shut door until yeah. there were a few awkward conversations with my dad. And then by then it was already, I think for me, too late. I was already struggling with and and confused and and finding guys attractive rather than what he was talking about with you know the tapes from focus on the family and that kind of thing that were like you know boys liking girls and and it was like <laughs> I just I don't I feel very confused and unsure of where I fit within that whole context does that make sense yeah how how old were you at this point when like you were beginning to have attractions for boys Honestly, I think probably I hit puberty pretty late, mm -hmm. um, didn't have any kind of growth spurt or bodily real changes probably until like 15, 16, yeah. um, which that's also tough. Um, mm -hmm. 
And oh, as a side as well, in all of that, I was like intensely bullied most of my primary school, uh, middle school, high school, just never liked by the guys because I wasn't one of them, you know, um, and that real pack mentality within a class. And, and as well, I was at a private Christian school, which you'd think might help, but really doesn't. Um, and <laughs> I remember it was such a, it was a small private country Christian school where I was with the same group of people from five years old to 18 or when I left school at 15, 16. Mm. So if I wasn't liked by them at age five when they were like, don't hang with us in the sandpit because you're kind of weird. I wasn't liked at all for the next 10 years. There was no change of scenery, no change of kids. And that was really, really tough. I had just years and years of bullying and you know, now that I understand looking through things with a spiritual lens, you know, word curses, they would call me faggot and gay all the time. And I didn't know how to refute that or rebuke it. So I just sort of let it sit on me and I would ponder that and be like, I guess maybe I am. And I guess partner with things, you know, it's terrible, terrible. Like what goes on when you're so, you're young and how do you even like at, at 10 years old, 12 years old, how do you know how to handle these things and come up against this stuff? And, you know, so. Yeah. So how did you navigate through that season and then begin to step into, you know, the stuff that you stepped into with your sexuality? Talk me through that a little bit. So that just share your testimony, really. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that I... Um, that I've always said is that this journey um, to wholeness and freedom, um, it's a long journey, um, it's arduous, it's not easy, and it's one that shouldn't be taken lightly. Um, it so flies in the face of the whole pray the gay away and like God just doing some quick, you know, and we're yeah, free yeah. and done. Because it's not, it's actually not about that. It's like you're not to ask God to take away the gay or the struggle is to ask him to fundamentally change your um, physiology, not in the sense of homosexuality, but of sexual desire. Mm -hmm. That's actually that a God-given part of our makeup. Mm -hmm. And we have, I have, um, through things people have spoken against me, things that I've believed, things that I've declared over my life, things that have happened to me, um, you know, not in my case, but in others, you know, sexual abuse, things like that, it all compounds and becomes a warped, incorrect sexual desire and sexual manifestation. Yeah. Yeah. But if we ask God to actually like, like to honestly say, God, you know, take the gay away, he would actually have to remove sexual desire. And that's not what he's going to do. Yeah. He's always going to be leading us into wholeness and restoration and freedom and a redemption of the thing that's been twisted. But it's like saying, you know, he's, if, if you were to say like, oh, this, you know, saw, I got a cut on my, on my hand. So cut away the arm to stop the pain. Yeah. That's not what it's like. No, you actually just need to, to to heal and to restore the thing that's gone wrong. And you don't have to like lop off an entire piece of your body. Does that make sense? And so just yeah. that as, as a precursor. Um, Stephen, I think can I just uh, um, can I just quickly just jump in there? Um, and I'm sure we'll unpack this a little more later. But just in some of the studies that I've read in terms of the way the journey of sexuality unfolds, when something like homosexuality or promiscuity or dysfunction comes in, it's because the actual normal healthy sexual development has been interrupted. You know, it's not because sexuality is wrong. It's not because yeah, sexual exactly. desire is wrong, but actually because the correct way in the way that God has designed us to journey through that has actually been violated. 
And so I love what you're saying that, you know, it's not sexual desire that's wrong, but actually Mm -hmm. it's the violation of that desire or the early awakening of that desire in abnormal circumstances. That's what actually leads to dysfunction. So the fact that you're able to identify that is really powerful. Yeah, and that is so real. And so I've been looking through, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Joe Dispenza. He has a book called Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. And he talks about like epigenetics and rewiring of the brain and the science behind that kind of thing and why you can have identical twins where one is gay and the other is not. And it's, one's not hiding it, one's not like, it's it's, the, it's literally that it's not a DNA thing. It's a it is, it's the nature versus nurture thing. And not, not just because we believe that God, you know, doesn't make a mistake and he wouldn't say something is wrong or sinful or needs healing if it was something that was, um, that he had created that way. That's just, we have to trust that nature of God first before we look at the things we don't understand. And we have to look at it through that lens. But I think what's really interesting for me was as I've journeyed more into this and have looked deeply into my past and where this stuff came from, I actually realized that for me, uh, the homosexual desires were actually springing out of jealousy. And it was a thing of me needing to control something that felt wildly out of control. And Mm -hmm. I'll, to to unpack that, um, it looks like, um, I remember, it was probably beginning of high school, actually. Um, I remember that um, there were a few guys in my class who, who I had idolized and, and seen them as this like peak masculine perfection idea for my age group. And, you know, it was, it was the, the two guys that all the girls wanted to be with. They were so cool, effortlessly could do everything right, you know, but then also were like, never tried too hard. And like, it just, they were, they were this epitome of cool. And I remember being first and foremost, just jealous of them. Like, I wish that could be me. Um, and already by this time, I have this onset of struggling with this sexuality and, and these desires. And I remember it like um, when I, I found myself really attracted to, to both of them. And what that actually was, was I realized that I was attracted. It, it was this jealousy thing in me that was like, I, the way that I can have control over you and the fact that as well that they didn't like me and ha- actually were like ousted me from the group because they controlled everything, you know, how high school worked. And this thing of like the way that I could have control over them, even just the only way it's only in my mind was if I was able to sexualize them, make them only a body. And then I was actually able to, um, you know, use that to um, control. And that was my way of um, gaining. power. Yeah. Yeah. And getting this kind of power playback, which is so um, again, it's a critical part of the makeup and the physiology of, of how God's wired men to be. It's this, there is that like power adventure, you know, like competitive, who's better. So it's like, again, to ask God to take away even those drives and those desires in that sense mm-hmm. is he's going like, nah, you just have this stuff. The, you're looking at things the wrong way around. And often we're just asking the wrong questions. And I think, again, that was a really critical thing that I, that I realized. And, you know, even to this day where if I will have a, you know, moment of weakness or feel myself being tempted um, into something, you know, with, with a, an old mindset or something that triggers me into something or situation or whatever, it always, um, it always seems to stem out of this jealous thing where it's like, you know, something will come around just like, whoa, that person is just like so cool. They're effortless and all this kind of thing. And something else will trigger this. And it's just like, it's always comes from that lens, not from this thing of, oh, I just want to marry a guy and settle down. Like it's never been this husband boyfriend thing. It's always been this controlling and trying to sexualize 
and, and, and turning what I couldn't attain personally, finding it basically being like so disappointed in myself, what I couldn't, you know, control and attain, and then controlling that and turning it sexual. Mm. Because I think that's so often what happens when sexuality is awakened early in us, it becomes a natural, especially for guys anyway, it becomes a natural knee-jerk reaction. We sexualize what we don't understand. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, like, you've only been able to identify this stuff in hindsight, but when you were living it, you know, when you're a teenager and when you're walking through it, um, what was that like? Like, how did you go from you know, just having attractions to boys to actually then walking that out and it becoming a reality for you where you, you know, were living in a homosexual lifestyle. Like, I don't actually know your story. So just unpack yeah. your actual journey for me. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so I actually never, you know, never um, have had uh, a boyfriend or any kind of sexual relationship. Um, it's just always been a... Um, you know, a, which is not like it's um, any less of a, of a struggle or any less of the pain to undo, mm. but years and years of um, deep addiction um, with masturbation, pornography, gay pornography, um, and, and, and years and years of, of hate, of hatred for myself, hatred for family, hatred at God. Like just, it was this, I was a, a like a dark, depressed, angry um cesspool of sexual frustration you know just that like it's just dark awful awful um but never acted upon and I really feel like there was um the grace of God in that truly um because I because there is something different about when it crosses over to a physical thing that is a it's another level of having to undo that spiritually um and I'm just I am just grateful to God that that never happened um not that there weren't opportunities for it to happen for sure. Um, and moments where I, you know, had flirted with the idea of that. Um, but no, never actually um, sort of fully went into that lifestyle um, per se. But as I was, you know, sort of saying about that 15 year journey, so about, about like, you know, 15 years ago um, was when so much of this kind of stuff started and, and came to a T. And, and at the same time, I always felt the Lord saying like, Hey, this isn't this isn't my best for you. Yeah. And I would always have this deep inner thing of this wrestling of, um, I like this, mm-hmm. but I also feel enslaved to it. Yeah. And I know there's a better way, and I want that, and I don't want that all at the same time. Yeah. yeah. You know the classic faith and worldly pleasures dichotomy that is the great wrestle of Christianity and following Jesus. That the, is to our deathbed, I'm sure. You know, it'll go through different phases and stages of things, but there's always going to be something vying for our attention and vying for our affection and devotion more than Jesus because that's actually the point of life on earth is, is about us learning to follow and learning to, you know, it's that is actually, again, it's like to ask God to take that away would be asking him to take away sin from the world and that is the ultimate plan one day, but we're caught in between the now and the not yet and so we have to yeah. learn to that you know what I mean and and he gives us free will and he honors free will and so if you took away free will then where is the choice in us actually choosing good and choosing love and choosing righteousness um but for you obviously you're brought up in a Christian home and you're going to like a Christian school so 
talk me through like where God was when you were yes. grappling with all of this stuff. Like, how did you think God saw you or saw your sexuality? Yeah, yeah. I um, I, I mean, I just remember. I, I I clearly can remember there was a um a piano recital practice room at the school for the small music department that we had. The one little bit of art and culture that you know was that like I had just I had tried and tried to learn and master any kind of instrument. It just wasn't working. But I, I'd learned how to read music enough that I could play the piano a little bit. I just remember lunch times where I would hire out that practice room just you know to say that I was practicing, but it was mainly just to escape. Um, the bullying escaped the hurt and escape um, myself. And I remember there were only a couple of music books there. There was some old Hillsong 90s worship music stuff that I grew up on. I was raised on all that and I loved it so much. And that was always the thing that I think was the saving grace for me was as I talk about that dichotomy of being pulled between the two, you know, extremes. As much as I was intrigued, curious, and kind of liked this addiction and this dark side of myself. Um, I knew, as I said before, that I wanted to be free of it and there was something higher. And my saving grace in all of that wasn't, you know, scripture. It wasn't great teaching. It wasn't, you know, parents that could like lead me on and whatever. It was the gift of worship music. And that was my saving grace. And I think the Lord really, it was a gift from him first and foremost, you know, but he really used that to save me. And so, you know, harkening back again to that piano recital room. And I just remember opening one of those old books and lunchtime after lunchtime after lunchtime, I would just sit in there and I would cry. I wouldn't even turn the lights on, just dark with the one little light that came from like outside. And I would just could barely see it. And I would just play these songs, you know, and I remember one song just was, it was called, I will run to you. Um, and the, the verse just was like, your eyes on the sparrow and your hand, it comforts me. And I remember like getting just enough to that verse and just continuing to play. And I couldn't even speak or sing. I just was weeping so much and feeling Jesus in the midst of this, not taking something away, not asking me to be something that I wasn't, not setting an impossibly high standard, but somehow next to me on the piano stool, shouldering the pain with me and just with an arm around me saying, I've got a, I've got a plan, I've got you, let's walk this out. It's my timeline, I'm, I'm in control and I'm, I'm working something glorious in you. Um, but, but I'm not mad, mm. I don't hate you, I'm not angry. Um, I see you for who you are, not your struggle. Um, you know, and it, was, and it was those moments of just, I felt like Jesus was literally the only person I had wow. um, who understood and who understood the dichotomy of me wanting this but not wanting it. Because, you know, I think too, when we look at um, one of the things that's always taken my heart um, is when we look at uh, Jesus being tempted by the devil in the desert. And you got to remember that like temptation isn't sin because mm -hmm. Jesus never sinned, but he was tempted. And you got to understand too that temptation, um, we often look at it and we think, you know, oh, Jesus was just these, you know, like away from me, Satan, da da da. da. But you got to realize if he, if it says he was tempted, that means for, you know, taking a bit of creative license. He potentially was, you know, drooling over the thought of having all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor bow down and, and worship him. All he's got to do is worship the enemy. And that's got to be like, it wasn't just like he was like, no, I know the plan. He knew the cross was coming. He didn't want to have to go through that. And here was a way out. Here was a way out. Everything that he was going to accomplish, here was a way out right here. Being offered quietly, no one has to see, all this kind of thing. I just think Jesus knows. 
he actually does know the struggle. He knows the dichotomy of sitting here and being deeply addicted to, you know, pornography, not necessarily, not that struggle, but he understands the struggle and temptation of warring within yourself of wanting to be different, but not being able to change Yeah. or, or, or understanding that you, you desperately want something that you know, isn't good for you, that you know, you can't have. Um, he understands temptation and that has got to be one of the most beautiful parts of the man of sorrows, the Jesus, the savior that walks alongside the brother yeah. who deeply understands and is on a path of redemption rather than this high lofty God who we sit here and think is just angry at me because I'm watching porn again, mm-hmm. you know? And the Bible actually tells us, you know, that there's not any kind of temptation that we endure that Jesus himself did not also, you know, get faced with. And sometimes I know this example that I'm about to give, some Christians might find it off key, but even when Mary was wiping his feet with her hair, that is actually quite an erotic act, you know, like it's not like you're being tickled by it a cat you know it actually is an erotic act or it can potentially be and so Jesus would have had to as a man actually disregard you know like that side of him because ultimately if Jesus was a human being in every single way that we have been then he would have also have been a sexual being you know that he chose to walk in purity he chose not to be married he chose to steward his sex drive in a way where that was so holy but he can relate he can relate with the struggles of a sex drive because actually he was a sexual being and there was an encounter that we read about in the bible where a woman did wash his you know feet with her hair so jesus totally totally gets it um what i what i do also love stephen is that you know the fact that you were wrestling with all of that stuff and there's all of that addiction to porn and masturbation yet the only one you could turn to was Jesus. That is so rare, I think, because oftentimes many Christians are wrestling with this, but they're running away from God. And they're running away because the shame and the humiliation and the condemnation is like putting a wall between them. Yet the truth is that Jesus is right there the whole time in the struggle. And you yourself knew that even as a young young Mm. man or a teenager, you were quite aware of that. Yes. Yeah, very much so. And I think, uh, yeah, as I said before, you know, that like it was worship that was that inroad that was this grace of God where he would meet me. And I remember like, you know, I would have, it just would be in turmoil all the time. But the only way that I could fall asleep or have, you know, peace was if I would have my little cassette Walkman because, hey, I'm almost 30. (laughs) Um, Cassette Walkman and I would be, you know, listening to worship tapes and things like that. It was the only way that I could find peace and comfort and quiet and, and, and you know and on that too I um something that I realized well actually that I didn't realize until I had done a bit more research and talked with more people uh, across um my journey um with people who've also struggled with the same thing um in the faith circle uh that I actually opened up and talked to my parents about this um as soon as it was like an issue um I realized I remember just talking with my mom and dad about you know, like, hey, I, I'm really attracted to this guy. Like, is it, I know that's like not right or normal, right? You know, all this kind of thing. And so much, and I just wanted as well to, to sort of put this out there to my parents' beautiful credit and, and just the wonder of how God was just probably just very, very sovereign and, and, and caring in that moment. Um, 
they responded with such love and kindness and did not make a big deal out of it, which is like everything that I am now saying is like, listen, this is how the church has got to respond to this stuff because we've forever made picket fence. You know, we've picketed things and we've been angry. And, and what did I see was parents who, who may have been freaking out on the inside. I have no idea. But all they said was like, hey, yeah, let's pray about that. Let's take it to God. You know, he's not afraid of it. We're not afraid of it. We love you. Like, you're great. Like, don't. And there was a huge part of that, actually, that now that I look back, I think helped to somehow normalize it and normalize it enough that it wasn't this taboo thing. I knew that it was taboo outside my home and outside, literally even just into the church that we were going to, whatever. But with them, I always felt comfortable, you know, and to this day, my dad's my accountability partner. You know, it's this beautiful thing where I'll I'll talk with him if I've messed up or, you know, whatever it is. And it just, I think there's, I love that. And I'm so grateful for that relationship and that, um, how much that's been able to grow. And again, even just be its own testimony of reconciliation and redemption, you know, especially with the dad, the father figure that is so much um, to use that word to blame for so much of this, you know, like fathers, just as a little, you know, PSA, fathers have such an important part to play in the developmental stages of not just guys, but daughters too. It is such a, and that's why the enemy has gone after eradicating fathers and eradicating family. It's just, yeah. it's actually, when you look at it, you're like, wow, devil, that's actually quite an obvious playbook you're using. Like when you actually step, start to look and break down some of these things, I'm like, this is actually not surprising at all. And you're getting, you're on your last legs. It's, you're getting kind of desperate, honestly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Stephen, talk me through uh, how you began to kind of get freedom because yes. you've shared that you're addicted to porn and masturbation and you're having attraction to guys and you're feeling that the Lord's there, you know, like mm-hmm. he's kind of in the struggle with you. So what was it that actually began to shift things? And were there like any game-changing moments? Were there any key things that really happened to bring you real breakthrough? Yeah, 100%. Um, To to sort of backtrack a bit with that. For me, I think um, later on in the journey, but the biggest thing and the most key point of no return and change that happened in my life was moving to America. Um, was actually, which is why I look at it and I think like, you know, hey, God is so good and so gracious that like Bethlehem Music needed, you know, a designer needed some creative. But more than that, I needed healing and I needed freedom. And he knew that he could connect those two dots and actually bring about something here that was a win-win for all sides. But it wasn't about those, those six years when I look back at it, I don't, you know, like it feels weird even talking about yourself like this, but, you know, I look at it and people will talk to me about like, you were nominated for a Dove Award for album cover of the year and things like that. And it's like, wow, all this stuff that happened and tours and the, just the amazingness of that job, which, yeah, I'm so grateful for. And it's an amazing experience. But I look at it and I think that was the boot camp. That was the six years of healing. That was the five story hospital with, you know, five star staff all just for me. Literally, that's what it felt like. It was the most incredible, humbling honoring time in my life where I felt like the Lord just was like, Hey, whatever you need, I've got it here for you. It wasn't always easy. In fact, actually it was really tough. I mean, a boot camp is not easy, but it gets you ready for war. And that sounds like, you know, are we out of the, are we out of the woods? Are we into the calm and all this kind of thing? But like, I I don't mean like a war on, um, I mean, I do mean a war on sexuality. I actually think that's what I'm called to in, in, in many different ways, but I, I don't mean like, a war of that you're constantly battling something because there is this thing of, of freedom and being able to relax and come out into the clearing and be free. 
But I do mean that like the boot camp that actually gets you ready to have a testimony. And this is something I'll say to anyone, whatever you're struggling with, lean into your struggles, lean into finding that healing because there is your authority, your power um, comes from your testimony, comes from the things that you actually gain victory over. And that is what the world desperately is in need of, whether it's, you know, eating disorders, whether it's lying, whether, you know, whatever it is, find the thing that, that you struggle with, lean into it and get God's perspective on it and get the victory in that because that's where you get your authority from. And I just, so it's like all of that, you know, it was moving to America and being part of a culture and a community that valued me, that loved me, that saw me for who I was. Again, they saw me um, not for the struggle. They saw me for the the man that I was, even when I actually still kind of felt like a 12-year-old boy that kind of felt very feminine and um, just felt like I didn't belong. I wasn't at home in my, I wasn't at home in my body, wasn't at home in who I just felt like I was, wasn't at home in my country. And so I, I just felt like how, how beautiful of God to literally pluck me up and go like, hey, this actually, the freedom and stuff that you that you need isn't going to be found in New Zealand. Yeah. I, and I, I would on the record say that it's just not the culture for it. Mm-hmm. But isn't it funny? He'll take you away, get you healed, get you whole. Yes, win win on all sides, but then actually bring you back exactly. to release that thing into the exactly. land that desperately needs it. And so I'm now that I'm the more and more that I look at it, even just unpacking it a bit now, I'm like, yeah, again, it's this beautiful, glorious plan that we just, we, we could never orchestrate and think, you know, in a million years. But God is so good and so gracious. But it was, it was moving and getting out of the culture, getting out of the same friend groups, getting out or lack of friend groups, getting out of the city, the town, the small mindsets, and actually going somewhere where people had a revelation of kingdom living and actually like that they believed there was freedom in this, where I hadn't necessarily seen that modeled around in New Zealand with the church. Yeah. Um, so actually being able to, and then also being able to journey, have counseling, walk through things with people in America um, at Bethel was the gift of life um, for me and was the, the thing that, that turned that around and was the tipping point, if you will. I do actually want to just unpack that a little bit more, Stephen, because, you know, so much of restoration is who God puts around you. And oftentimes the reason we don't get restored is because the people around us or the people that we approach may judge us or may condemn us or may reject us. But what I love is, you know, you've shared about your parents who embraced you. And even though they may have been anxious on the inside, but all they showed you was love and grace. And then Bethel, um, I would love you to just unpack a little bit about what that acceptance at Bethel looked like for you, you know, how they embraced you and how that helped you in your personal restoration Bethel's role in that because actually we don't hear enough about how much good ministry sometimes is available for us when we do struggle with sexuality or any kind of you know wrestle so unpack Bethel's role a little bit more for me yeah for sure um and thank you for actually stopping on that because I agree and I think it's so important to to not just honor them but to honor um, the church at large too, where she does do a good job, you know, because she gets so much flack for not helping, like even what I was, you know, introing with before and, and wanting to like help. And there's so far to go, but to actually honor and celebrate the times when it really does go well and it's right and God is glorified and is you and is so shown through his people and his bride. Um, so I love that. Yeah. But I remember um, it must have been 24. 15 actually it was at our first worship school and it was I had I had probably been part of the Bethel music team for maybe a year 
and I had done this worship project. So without going into a full kind of, you know, um, back history of that, um, it, it, I'd done this project, a 365 project, you know, where you do one thing every day for a year. And that was actually what had become this design and art portfolio that had landed at Bethel Music that got me the job and got me over there. And so at this first worship school, they sort of did these little testimony slots where someone could come up onto the stage at, at, in the big main sanctuary, you know, in front of a thousand people um, at the school and share the testimony. And they said, see, why don't you get up and share about um, that 365 project? What, you know, how you see worship as more than music, you know, inspire the people with this kind of thing. So I share this story. And the interesting thing about that whole worship project was that it was actually a response out of this deep darkness and depression. And it was like a last straw, a desperate resort to a cry to God of like, give me some kind of hope and something to live for. Otherwise I'm done with it all. Um, and this project came out as this, like, you know, it was, it was me responding to God in spirit and truth worship through creativity, not through song and lyric and whatnot. Yeah. So I share this story, but it was because it was out of this deep place of um, darkness. And I didn't actually plan to. I had all my notes written out, you know, I was very nervous. And I just was reading out um, what I was going to say. And I found myself actually saying, um, that was very, you know, ordained by the spirit. But I, I just found myself saying, and all of this was actually the response and it was my heart's cry because I was deeply wrestling with my sexuality, um, my sexual orientation. And you could hear the room just like, this like kind of, it just went dead silent. And then I just started crying. Mm-hmm. I, in front of all these people wept and we just like broke down, like leaning heavy on the podium, weeping. And I like, I, I mean, I felt like I actually kind of blacked out. I just, it, the room went fuzzy. I just was like, oh no, this is like, I'm going, <laughs> I'm going down, what's happening, you know? so terrified and I kind of and I realized there was the sound and I looked up and I'm like an absolute mess and the room is standing and applauding (laughs) and it moves me to this day um that room was standing and applauding and I remember looking over to the right where all the staff all this all the teachers Brian and Jan all these you know worship leaders and they were they were arms in the air jumping and like and and just they were like and here's the thing, my next, I couldn't even get anything out of my mouth. The next word could have been, and I'm a gay Christian, but they were down there cheering. They were just so, look, we see you wherever you are right now in the midst of this. And we are here for you. We champion you. You build, like, keep talking. You're on that stage. Like, it was just the most incredibly healing, sweetest thing. And I remember, so I just, you know, I shared and and and, and spoke actually kind of just, it was my first time going kind of spontaneous and I just shared about my journey of walking into freedom with this stuff and feeling like I was actually at that point definitely not free but walking toward it and I just encourage people like listen I'm in the midst of a struggle but there is hope I believe there is hope find it and walk it if you're struggling with this and it became this whole ministry it was I mean it was stunning and I remember coming down off that stage and just they carried on there was other people sharing and whatnot but the staff people around me, like, I just remember too, the first person I get off the side of the stage and Jen, sweet, lovely Jen Johnson runs over to me, huge hug. And she just holds on to me and says, thank you. You opened up this room. You gave people permission to be themselves. Um, I honor you. Uh, You're incredible. Whatever we can do to help, we are here for you. We love you. Do you know that? We love you. We love you. And it was so incredible. And then other people, guys, people who I'd felt like I didn't they were kind of, again, some of those epitome of like cool people or whatever, you know, within the worship community who just came up and gave me big hugs and were like unashamed, like everyone else was sitting down, still just hugging me, being like, we love you. 
you're the best. Like and it just, there was no shame. There was no condemnation. There was no like, oh God, we can't have him like on the same bus as us if we're getting changed anymore. It was just like, yeah. I've never actually been probably more deeply accepted or entered into by almost the opposite of what you would think would be the entry point to that by actually revealing the, the the darkest thing actually meant people were like, oh my gosh, you're real. I love it. Let's be friends, you know? And I think that's that's what I mean I was sort of saying earlier. The world is yearning for that mm. in every sense of the thing. They're like, give me a reason to believe that I'm okay and that I'm all right in my mess and that I can be imperfect. I don't have to have... Yeah the Instagram highlight that is so cliche, but is so real. You know what I mean? And so I just think, um, yeah, that was them, them accepting me was so incredibly, that was what opened the door. And then the other really important thing um, that I can't not mention um, is my best friend, um, Tommy. That is the end of today's episode, guys. What a beautiful, rich, rich, rich conversation this has been. Thank you to Stephen for all that he shared and poured out. Please do tune in to the next podcast because we're going to be continuing the second half of this conversation.